Welcome to the Secrets of High Demand Coaches podcast, where I interview some of the best coaches in the business to find their secrets and share them with the world. I'm Scott Ritzheimer, founder and CEO of Scale Architects, and we help founders and leaders find the right coach at the right time so they can achieve the predictable success they deserve. And a huge part of that is helping great coaches do great work that creates enormous demand for their services with way less effort. If you're a high demand coach, I'd absolutely love to share your story and expertise as well. So stick around to the end of the show and we'll reveal how you can be our next guest in 15 to 20 minutes. Let's go. Hello, hello, and welcome. Welcome once again to the Secrets of the High Demand Coach podcast. And I am here with yet another high demand coach, and that is the one, the only, Akeem Novak, who helps CEOs and C-suite leaders around the world to show up with a relaxed authority and amplify their impact. His clients include global enterprises such as Sanofi, Takeda, I don't know how to say half of these, Owens Corning, HSBC Bank, Lanza, Assurant, WebBuilt, Dover Corporation and Chart Industries, just to name a few. Some of those are big, big names, both on this side of the pond and the other. Uh, he's a TEDx speaker, author of three books on personal presence. He's also the host of the My Fourth Act podcast and has been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, Fast Company, Forbes, Entrepreneur, Mind Body Green, and NBC and NPR. He has an MA in organizational psychology and international relations from New York University. And that doesn't even begin to scratch the surface. You are in for a fantastic episode. And uh, that's all thanks to this man, Akeem. Welcome to the show. So excited to have you here. Uh, I was wondering, before we get into uh, some of the phenomenal work that you do, I'd love to just pause for a moment and hear your story. Let's hit rewind. What were you doing before getting into coaching and consulting? And how did that ultimately lead you to make the leap? First of all, Scott, I'm happy to be here. I, I was chuckling at your wonderful introduction because I, I, I guess I really have done all those things and I, I tend to not live in the past. But in the spirit of your question, let me take you back to two moments in my life uh, that were important. Uh, I'm going to take you about 20 years back. I live in South Florida now, but I was living in Manhattan and I was at this cocktail party and I was talking to this guy who I never met before. And you know how you ask people, what do you do for a living? And he said, I, I have a temporary staffing agency and we have an office in Brooklyn and one in Tampa. And out of my mouth came completely un un uncensored. I said, I could never do that. And he looked at me, he said, of course you could. And I'm, etern I'm eternally grateful that he called me out on this belief. Now let let's jump forward about nine months later, I'm I was working as a big corporate trainer for an international training company at the time. It was a nice job. I had gone back to NYU to get my organizational psych degree, but I'm sitting in a cafe in the West Village in Manhattan on Sheridan Square, talking to a guy named Dan, again, a social acquaintance. And Dan said, oh, I, I, I just got a book deal to write a book about improvisation. And this is not pretty. In my mind, my judgmental mind says, the world doesn't need another book about improvisation. 
out of my mouth, of course, I say, oh, Dan, I'm so happy for you. That's amazing. But I have a competitive side. So my competitive side said, if Dan can get a book deal, I can get a book deal. And six weeks later, I had a book deal with his publishing house to write a book about public speaking. And I chuckled because you could say the world does not need another book about public speaking. <laughs> but I knew exactly what I wanted to say. I'd also taught acting before. And uh, and then, let me finish the story, I realized the moment I have my own book, I need to start my own business. I can't keep working for other people. And, and that was the start of my entrepreneurial journey about 20 years ago. Wow. Yeah, that's fascinating. And and uh, this kind of combination of business and the arts uh, or, you know, screenwriting plays, it, it shows up in a lot of what you do. And uh, uh, tell us a little bit. You have you have your host of the My Fourth Act podcast. Uh, folks, go ahead and check that out. Uh, it's fantastic. What what is a fourth act uh, and why should it matter to the busy CEOs and, and founders out there? Well, the fourth act is a theater metaphor. And in the traditional well-written play, they have five acts. And um, usually by the time you get to the fourth act, most of the major conflicts have been resolved, but you're not at the end yet. So the fourth act is sweet in the sense that you, if I relate this to business and life, hopefully we've accomplished a few things. We don't have that much to prove to the world anymore. So there's a chance to explore other stuff that we haven't explored before. And uh, so that's how I came up with the idea of my fourth act. And it was very simply, let me talk to people who have created unexpected lives. Most of my climate and my guests are very successful, but at some point their life took a turn uh, where it started to look very different from what it had. Yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating. So, yeah, what what does that look like? Is uh, to get into the fourth act? Do you uh, like are you a business owner? You sell your company. How do you know you're ready for your fourth act? Yeah. It it usually starts with some. I'd say I'd say either a dissatisfaction with where you are. You feel like there is something more. The current term that's used a lot, and it's a bit of a cliche, but I leave. You feel like there's a there's a bigger purpose or a deeper purpose, and uh, and it's easier to step into another act if you've done well so far. I, I tend to coach very successful people, so money is not of concern to them. But let me give an example. If I give you a classic story, this is an episode I'm releasing this week. I uh, I interviewed a a couple. She was a successful lawyer in in a partner in a law firm in Miami. He was a successful journalist. He was the Time Magazine correspondent for South America. He he ran the Bloomberg News um, Bureau in Sao Paulo. Later in life, they met on Match.com and became romantic partners. But in the meantime, Lori, the woman, had started a non, non-for-profit that funneled money to organizations in Tanzania that support uh young kids and get her getting better schooling. And 100% of the funds go to that. And when Ian and Rory met, Ian was a communications guy. He said, I- I'm going to be the communications director for AfriKids. So when I talk with them, it's funny. When you were growing up, probably neither would have thought something like AfriKids. That was not in their consciousness. 
But so the, the but the ability to to trust that you want to do it, it seems unlikely, but you'll pursue it, and it's deeply satisfying, even if it isn't always easy. Right. Right. Uh, so kind of dialing in on on what this looks like for, again, uh, a lot of our audience is founders, entrepreneurs. So one of the things that I've found is uh, just before this fourth act, there's there's this kind of uh, almost a stripping back process, almost a, a, like a, a like you're kind of being refined and, and challenged a little bit. You have to change a lot of, of how you approach the world, especially as a visionary leader. And it, it's it's much more about focus and, and yeah. dialing in and you know building a team and process. There's a lot more structure to it. Uh, and then I, I've found as, as you do that really well, you kind of reach the time limit on that, you know, and and it's time to start looking elsewhere. But what I've found is some folks struggle to kind of repurpose that visionary gift to something else, uh, to 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 you know to grab on to the next thing. Have you seen that? And how do you help folks get over it if you do? Um, I, I'll give you a very sort of banal metaphor, but it's been true in my life. Um, Twenty years ago, I bought my first house. I, when I live in Manhattan, I always rent it. And I was raised in Germany where if you buy something, you never, ever let it go. That's your house for life, right? Well, I realized, you know, when, when there was a downturn in the economy, 2008, 2009, oh, I, this is a good time to buy something else. I can get it cheap. So I bought something else. I sold the first house. Then my neighborhood in, in Florida, where I live, is very hot right now. So I got an offer I couldn't resist on my current house. So I sold that and I live in a condo. This is a metaphor like the fourth act, but I had to let go of any notion that my home was forever. So if you apply this to your business, you know, it, it required paying attention to opportunities to sell. It also required paying attention to my desire to, wait a minute, maybe the next place could be a condo, it could be simpler. Let me relate it to just for a moment to when I started my business, because my startup journey was, I, I was terrified of running a business, but I, I put myself in a think tank in Manhattan at the time. I'm a great believer in mastermind groups and other smart people helping us. And I was in a group with people who are entrepreneurs who were more advanced than I was. And they helped me make some, some very basic decisions or my vision for the business, but it sounds like a no-brainer, which is I only pursued clients that were large companies. The idea was if I pursue those, I do a good job, they'll keep hiring. I also, my vision was I want to have an international business. I want to work all over the world. And that can sound grandiose, but if I don't claim that, it surely isn't going to happen. So might as well claim that desire. And the other thing I said, I want to make as much money as quickly as possible so I can hire my first person who will run the company for me so I don't burn it. So these are like some early decisions around, and I know you and your partner, Les McEwen, do a lot of work around, you got to hire the right people. you got to, you got to grow with, you know, in the, in the end we win through others. So I also brought in other people and that was part of my scaling, but it started with hiring that first person. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, that's that's so true. So 
you brought this up and it was something I noticed as I was researching for the episode, but uh, you run these masterminds around this idea of the fourth act. Why is it that a peer group is so important at this stage of life? Uh, I, for about five or six years, ran masterminds for corporate clients. And I'm currently actually supporting two big corporations where I ran masterminds in-house. But you, you may you may know that Napoleon Hill, who is one of the early American success gurus, he's credited with ter- creating the term mastermind, which is uh, a collective mind is always better than our individual mind, and we exponentially accelerate um, growth for us. And, and one thing that tends to happen in most corporate worlds is we surround ourselves with people that are just like us. And that's not always a good thing. So in a mastermind, if I think I currently happen to have a mastermind with six women in it, and to give you an example, one of the women is the former head of IBM for innovation in Latin America. Another person is a 75-year-old American-born Tibetan Buddhist nun who had her own monastery. Now, the fact that these two women get to talk to each other and influence each other's thinking and challenge each other is powerful. Yeah. So, and in my own world, I, I'm a, I, I'm an international mastermind with four other coaches from every part of the world. We've been together for four years. So, I, I, I myself, I'm in constant conversations with people that challenge my thinking. Wow, wow. So, uh, let's go back uh, and and look at this from the individual perspective. What? Um, you mentioned on, uh, I don't know if it was one of your videos on the site, but this idea that when you're stepping into the fourth act, you've, you've resolved some childhood traumas. Uh, even in the show, you said you, you tackled some of the big problems. How, how does that, even like the idea of childhood trauma, it seems like we're a long way away from that. How does it show up and why is that somewhat of a prerequisite to stepping into the fourth state? Yeah. I'm... I'm a firm believer that we don't ultimately succeed in life if we don't play well with other people, don't let other people help us. And if we're not willing to help other people, that's sort of a spiritual principle. And uh, that tends, that ability tends to get blocked if we were somehow damaged as children, you know, if there is trauma. You know, we're either always on defending ourselves or we're always trying to prove ourselves. So I'm a great believer for, for things to unfold in, in that way with a little bit of ease, doing some of that personal homework. Yeah. In my case, it's been hypnotherapy. It's been over 20 years of therapy. I'm, <laughs> I'm not therapy now, but I'm just an advocate. Like, whatever the homework is, do it so the rest can unfold more easily. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. And and as you step into this stage, what, what what are some of the questions that folks should be asking themselves? Yeah. Here's a question that I ask all my guests on the Man Fourth Act podcast. And these are good questions for anybody to ask themselves, any entrepreneur, no matter how old you are. Um, if you look to the future, what would you like to do more of? And what would you like to do less of in your life? What are some things that would sweeten your experience of life? And this is the hardest one. What are some things that you're really good at, but when you're honest with yourself, you don't want to do anymore? 
because we're, we're constantly get rehired for past successes. And at some point we need to stop recreating those so something new can happen. Yeah. Yeah, that's so true. So uh, I've got a question for you. I, I love to ask this of, of all my guests. Uh, I'm fascinated what you have to say. Um, but what is what would you say is the biggest secret that you wish wasn't a secret at all? What's that one thing that you wish everybody listening or watching today knew? You know, I, I've been an executive coach for for really successful people for about 20 years now. And, and I'm very old school in the sense that I, when I work with anybody, we start with written coaching goals. You know, corporations hire me. I need to have that. And, and I write them, but I'd say 50% of the time, the person that's brought me in to coach somebody sales, somebody else will say something like, and now we have all the goals, but can you just help them relax? So the idea that that we relax, that we don't try so hard, and that sounds banal, but when we do, we don't push other people away. People are drawn to us. There's a space to co-create with others. So I will, for all of our listeners, say, what does relaxing more, what would that look like for you? Yeah. Wow. Uh, yeah, it's it, it, it's it goes straight at the heart of this kind of conception we have. It's always up and to the right. It always has to be bigger. It always has to be more. And and I think what happens when when you dial in on that question is you get a new opportunity to find the joy in where you're at right now. Yeah. Right. The joy in the journey, the joy in the process, as opposed to just trying to tackle that next hill. Yeah. Uh, which actually brings me to a, a question uh, that I want to ask, uh, and that is, uh, if you do act for well, right, and experience the joy of that, what comes next? How do you know that you're ready for the fifth act? I, I'm going to give you a potentially annoying answer. But the answer is this, and I fully believe this. I, by fully stepping into whatever is in front of us and committing to it and knowing when to move on, what's supposed to happen next will reveal itself. But it can't reveal itself unless I'm fully in what I'm doing right now and I'm willing to move on like like the, the house metaphor, right? Uh, so having the courage to not know what we'll do in five years, which goes counter to our program, we're all supposed to have a five-year plan. And I don't knock those. I think it's great to have those. They move us forward. But having the courage to not know, but pay attention to when something wants to change. Yeah. And the patience and willingness to wait for it. The patience, <laughs> which is not, a, I'm an impatient person, so it's not easy for me. Oh my goodness. So on that note, uh, tell us and take off your coach hat for a moment, put on your CEO hat, kind of get down into the ring with the rest of us, if you will. And, and tell us what's the next stage look like for you as a leader and what challenge we have to overcome to get there. I am in the process and it's easy for me to say this, but it's not easy to do is I want to have a continuously simpler life. Uh, simpler meaning how I live. Um, I still overcommit myself because people ask me to serve on this and do on that. And 
and I have to learn to not say yes to everything. That's part of it. Um, I'm probably going to live in Europe for a while and looking at what it might look like to, to be Europe based and work from there. So having the courage to change my physical life, even though I truly love where I am and I'm in Florida beach town, I'm close to the ocean. It's a great life. Um, but I mean, the, the, so that's it for me. I maybe just to elaborate, I, I had a successful international training and coaching company for 16 years and I went, which I then sold because I realized, and I had associates at all that I realized I don't want anymore. That was the beginning of my simplification. I have people that work for me now that I hired. So I have somebody who runs my business, but that question of what is simpler life looks like, which is not easy to answer. The answer is very personal. Um, and the deeper question, which you already alluded to, which is what brings me the most joy and let that be the guide. Yeah. Wow. Well, Akeem, this has been just a phenomenal, phenomenal episode and a wonderful conversation. I thank you so much for being on. Uh, it was an absolute joy. And for those of you who are watching and listening today, you know your time and attention mean the world to us. I hope you got as much out of this conversation as I know I did, and I cannot wait to see you next time. And before you go, make sure you check out the My Fourth uh, Act podcast uh, with Akeem Novak and also check out his site. We'll put the link in the show notes, akeemnovak.com. Thanks so much. Scott Ritzheimer here. Thank you so much for listening to the Secrets of High Demand Coaches podcast. If you are a successful coach, consultant, or advisor who's built a strong book of business and would like to be on the program, please visit go.scalearchitects.com. And if you got something out of this interview, would you share this episode on social media and just do a quick screenshot with your phone and text it to a friend or post it on the socials? If you know someone who'd be a great guest, you can tag them on social media to let them know about the show. And make sure you include the hashtag high demand coaching. I love seeing your posts. I love seeing your guest suggestions. Thank you so much. We are regularly putting out new episodes and content. To make sure you don't miss any of those episodes, go ahead and subscribe now. Your thumbs up, your ratings, your reviews, they go a long way to help us promote the show and they mean a lot to me and my team. If you want to know more, you can go to our website, www.scalearchitects.com, or you can follow me or the company on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Instagram. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time.